Hello, listeners. Just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our newest producer-level patron, Teresa Rogers. Thank you so much, Teresa. We really appreciate it. Also, thank you to our other producer-level patrons, Sarah Sawatchka-Dalton and Anna-Marie Piccioni. We appreciate you and all of our patrons so, so much. If you would like to know how to become a patron of the Art History Babes, head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes and become a patron for as low as $1 a month. You get extra bonus episodes. It's pretty cool. Also, be sure to check out artandobject.com. It is a fantastic resource for all things art, art history, contemporary art, art podcasts, Lots of resources compiled all in one easy location. That's artandobject.com. Also, just a quick note, this episode you're about to listen to was recorded long distance and we had some sound issues. So the quality of this episode sound-wise is not our best, but we worked pretty hard in post to make it as strong as we could. And I think it's still a pretty fun episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. The Art History Babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey, and I'm actually the only art history babe here today. But I'm joined by my dear friend, actor, creative, movie buff, Brian Muldoon. Hello, everyone. Creative. I like that. It's like a catch-all word. Like, <laughs> I use it for myself. I don't know. Sometimes people don't understand what I do, and you, you like, try to start to explain it, and it's just, like, creative. I create things. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, throw them a bone when their eyes blaze over. And- exactly. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I'm an actor living in New York. You and I went to college together. We're longtime friends. And for a long time, I've been a listener of Art History Babe and wanted to find a way to talk about I'm a big movie fan. Most specifically, I'm a huge horror movie fan. So now, today, we found this merging of our two worlds. Also, you dabble in art making as well. I have. I I have a few charcoals. I have some paints. (laughs) Uh, I'm known to do a sketch or two, but that's just, you know, solely my own soul for sure we if you couldn't tell by the name of the episode we are going to talk about netflix netflixes is that how you say that netflix's velvet buzzsaw it's um it's it's been around it's been the talk of the town lately yeah the follow-up movie from dan gilroy who directed nightcrawler did you see nightcrawler i didn't see nightcrawler but i wanted to also on netflix it's also very good so when we're talking about it, I can draw some parallels. But yeah, we're talking about Velvet Buzzsaw. Velvet Buzzsaw. All right. So just like what were some of your initial reactions? Just feelings, thoughts? Feelings, thoughts. Sure. Uh, well, one, an unhinged Jake Gyllenhaal is always fun. He I was a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. So watching him just just go full Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I like that uh, full Nicholas Cage. <laughs> and yeah, I think as a whole, I think what I told you when we had that brief conversation was it's just this really dark or satire on the art world and more specifically the business side of high end art and follows all these characters that just are each one less redeemable than the next. 
Um, mm-hmm. and there might be some spoilers in this episode. So like, um, we've done some past episodes, especially on our Patreon about like documentaries and things. Probably best for you to go watch the movie first, but we will try and give you warning before spoiling anything. But yeah, just a heads up. We might spoil things for you. So don't get mad. So sorry, but we're going to do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess just a quick catch up starts with it. An assistant, I guess, to an art curator. Is that right? Was that kind of her position? Uh, basically, she refers to herself as like a partner. But yeah, she's kind of an assistant. And she's trying to carve her own place in this in this art world. And there is a tenant in her apartment building that dies. She finds the body and she hears that the tenant has requested that all this art that is left in this apartment be destroyed after he dies. But she takes a peek and sees that this art is actually really riveting, really dark, really new and raw. And so she steals all the art and pushes it out as this new unknown artist. There's just a finite amount of art to sell and own. It's like a new hot thing and it is a horror movie, so we find out that there's something not so not so chill about these these art. <laughs> um and I guess it, and it just follows these people who, who knowingly know that, that what they're doing is so morally gray. Can we talk about the artist's name, Ventral Dece? That's like the what most badass name. <laughs> like I think there's Ventral even a line on it, right? That like the cherry on top is his name is Ventral Dece. That like they found all this art and his name just <laughs> happened to be like the most artist yeah. name that I've ever So, okay, my first reactions. I mean, just when I heard the concept for the film, I got really excited because if you've been, you know, like a longtime listener of the show, you know, like I love spooky stuff. So this is like both a commentary on the contemporary art world, which we also, we, you know, we love to kind of throw shade at the art market and the art world. And also it has to deal with haunted paintings, which <laughs> I also love. So, like, there I was very... Haunted painting movies, you know? There really aren't. There really aren't. It's an untapped market. And, yeah, so I was just, like, really excited by the idea. When it comes to horror, I kind of sit in this weird line. You know this, Brian. Like, I love, like, spooky, like, supernatural things. But I really I can't do violence like at all. So like there's a certain kind of horror film that I adore. And then there's a certain kind of horror film that I won't touch at all. And this being like horror satire was definitely the kind of horror film I I could handle. Like it wasn't I mean, to be fair, it wasn't really scary. Like it was it was definitely satirical. The scary scenes, the gory scenes are so ridiculous that they're like they don't like hurt you know they're not hard to watch i don't think personally so it was definitely like kind of sitting in this area of the kind of horror film that is also in certain ways making fun of itself as a horror film oh 100 percent, yes it's definitely tongue firmly planted in cheek at parts of this and especially i think when it does lean into the horror which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the movie as a whole. I think that was one of my gripes with the movies. I think you said it wasn't very scary, and I agree. I wish it was. I wish the director, Dan Gilroy, he used this element of horror to bring in and to tell this story. I think he could have leaned in a lot more into it. I mean, mm-hmm. scared, but pretty surface level and pretty superficial. 
save one amazing scene with Tony Collette that I was just dying. I thought it was so amazing. Like, yeah, that scene's that scene's nuts. See, honestly, so that scene it is crazy, but like I really loved the the next scene where they recount how she died and like with the kids yeah. like walking through the blood and shit. I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's what I was. Oh my gosh, just all these kids just walking through the blood and all these little footprints going around, and they had no idea. They think it's all. And I think it's also a great commentary on art sometimes that they just thought it was part of the exhibit. That this is this new thing that they had no idea what they were coming into. And there's a puddle of blood and these kids are like, oh, I guess this is part of it. Let's just have a little fun. Yeah, from that perspective and like the perspective of like an art historian, like, yeah, it both was it was 100 percent just a commentary on, you know, art in the contemporary art world, like post Dada art, where we don't really know if things are art or not, you know? And so it was like a comment on that. But at the same time, like watching that scene from above and watching these little kids walking around in the blood, like that scene, the first thing that came to mind was like, oh my God, that would be a brilliant artwork. You know, like I, like if I saw something like that, that was interactive to that point where you could be stepping in blood and leaving your footprints around, like that's brilliant. <laughs> right. It was both a, a critique in this sense that it's almost like poking fun at contemporary art in a very common way to poke fun at contemporary art. But it also, even the way that scene was filmed, I was like, this could be an artwork. You could just project this image of these kids walking around in blood, like on a projector. And that would be a very interesting artwork, you know? Vividly. Yeah, I would have the longest conversations trying to pick out what's happening here. And, and mm -hmm. but that's, yeah, just that aerial shot over the whole exhibit. And then just like trails of the footprints, and these kids all in their little uniforms as poor Tony Collette is lying there. <laughs> you know, we're talking yeah. about Tony Collette without an arm is right there too. And not until her assistant comes, what is it by the end of the day? This is like a whole day that she's just sitting out. No one's any the wiser. Yeah. Of all the deaths, that one was easily the most interesting. Yeah. And I think what you're saying with this, is it art? Is it not art? They, they do that a few times in the movie. There's part mm -hmm. John Malkovich is this, is another character in artist that seems to have lost his voice and is trying to find some new inspiration. So someone comes to visit his studio and sees a pile of garbage bags and goes, wow, that's so brave, so raw. What is this? It's like, that's garbage. That's the arts over here. It was so funny. So we were just in L.A. for the L.A. art show, which relates to this a lot <laughs> because it is just like a commentary on one contemporary art shows and the L.A. art scene specifically. Like that opening scene of Velvet Buzzsaw is at Art Basel. But like that building when he like first walks in, like that's exactly what the L.A. art show looked like. You know, like really? it was like some of the same art, some of the like the same feel. So it felt very relevant having just come back from that event which was like don't get me wrong a great event and we had an amazing time but right out the gate with that like opening scene in art basel it set that satire of the art world in a very real place so when we were at the art show we had some friends with us one of our friends was looking for a garbage can and he said out loud he's like is that a garbage can or is that art <laughs> And this was before, you know, Velvet Buzzsaw came out. So it was like, like, uh, conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is like a real like that exact question, I think, is asked very often in the contemporary art world at contemporary art shows. That's something I think that started a few decades ago. Like, once again, it's the post Dada. It's that any object could be an art object. And if you're at a contemporary art show or in a contemporary artist gallery, any object can be an art object. Right. So like that makes art both more complicated and more interesting, but it also can be kind of like frustrating for people who are trying to understand art or differentiate or like, you know, make sense of it all. So yeah, I think that's a very like pointed art world joke at this point. But also John Malkovich was one of my favorite characters. Oh, like in his last scene, while the credits yes! are rolling, everyone else has these horrible demises in this movie. But John Malkovich he just left it all and he's on a beach drawing circles and he figured it out. And like he's making right? art for himself and he's out of the world and he's happy. And that's, I think that's definitely a commentary on something there. 100% because I, you know, I definitely have some critiques of the film and things that I think were maybe missed opportunities. By the end, I, I there were things about it I loved and things about it I didn't love so much. But that ending scene... I'm a huge sucker for a good ending in books, film, whatever, uh, TV, even like you have to just like wrap things up well. And that ending scene of John Malkovich on the beach, like making sand art, basically for no one that wrapped it up for me in like a very real way in a way where I was like, OK, all right, this is tapping into something. Just that idea. I kind of like related to it in a certain way, because as someone who like studies art and is kind of trying to make my way in this really complicated, really hierarchical art world that is run by money. I've always been really interested in like earth art and art that's a little like closer to the elements. And that's about like exploring relationship to nature and like art that you can't sell and art that is ephemeral. And so to end it on John Malkovich making very ephemeral art on a beach, it just like spoke to my heart. <laughs> like I was yeah. like, yes, yeah. you did it, John. <laughs> I don't even what, what was his name in the movie? I don't remember what his name was in the movie. <laughs> I have the IMDb pulled up for quick reference. It was Piers. His name was just Piers. And I think it's also, I mean, 100% his character is a commentary on the, you have to sort of torture yourself to get anywhere in this art world. Mm -hmm. We was kind of saying because he is this character for a lot of movies who has been lauded that he was this amazing artist when he was drank. But now he's, since he's been sober, he can't make any art that anyone is interested in. So everyone's like, I just wish he would drink again. And then he would make good art again. And he's like, I don't want to. And so he's just in this depressed place. So there's like this sort of suggestion that in order for you to like put out art that's worth something, you have to really sacrifice or really go through the ringer in some other way. It's the I mean, it's the tortured artist mythos. This thing we've developed, you know, over the 20th century. And we've talked about this on the podcast quite a few times. But that to be a good artist, you have to be deeply tortured or unhealthy in some way, <laughs> which is the complete opposite of the truth. But we've just created this idea that art is good when there's some kind of heavy, dark, you know, torturous story connected to it. That's just something we just created as a society. And like, we haven't been able to let go of yet. He's kind of representative of that Jackson Pollock type, you know, the 
alcoholic tortured artist and then instead of drinking himself to death he gets sober and the art world is like no once again just another on the nose critique of what happens at a fairly large scale in the contemporary art world and within the contemporary art market also kind of going off your point i want to talk about uh sweet sweet young coco <laughs> So Natalia Dyer from uh, Stranger Things, she plays Coco, who probably unsurprisingly I could relate to. <laughs> and I bet a lot of people that listen to the show could relate to just like this sweet 20 something girl from the Midwest, from Michigan, just trying so hard to make it in the art world. And everyone is stepping all over her and treating her like shit. And she's not getting paid like very well at all. She can't survive, but she's still just like doing everything she can to try and carve a little space for herself in the art world. And like that is such a real thing for, I think, so many 20-somethings right now with degrees in art, art history, art management, whatever. It's just like trying to just get through and it's like a constant struggle. And then the movie takes it to an even better level because Coco is the one who finds almost all of the bodies. Oh my God, yeah. this is Brennan Gag. That everyone that gives her a shot just, just like throws her a bone of like, all right, things are going to get better for you now. It's like the kiss of death. They're the next one that dies. And she is always the one that finds the body. And by the last death, oh my gosh, it was the funniest part of the whole movie where she finally finds poor Jake Gyllenhaal. Sorry, spoilers. I should have said it first. Finds poor Jakey. And instead of screaming like the first three bodies she finds, she just yells, oh, fuck. You know, like, <laughs> you can't get us a break like this is so just that moment is so relatable oh god i thought this was it i love too because her character is in the situation of like literally like she can't find a consistent well-paying job she's trying to survive in la she like literally is probably just the same way a lot of millennials are like she's just concerned with not being able to pay her rent that I don't even know if she's able to fully process like the emotional trauma of finding all of these bodies <laughs> like at all, no. at all. like she doesn't have time <laughs> yeah she leaves one scene by saying like hi um can I go home to get a few hours of sleep like she's asking permission just to get a couple hours of sleep but she is not she's not well I don't think. Yeah, at all. Sweet, sweet Coco. Like, I think that's a struggle that a lot of people can probably relate to right now, especially those trying to like break into the art world or probably, you know, just like any industry that's particularly hard to find consistent work in for young people. Like, I think that's that was just like a really smart way to develop her character. And yeah, by the end of the movie, she goes back home to Michigan. So, (laughs) yeah. She does. And she she takes the cat also. So I, I don't know. I, I think there's something to that as well. This cat that was saturated in this world. And she, that's like her token that she takes home. I don't know. There's I think there's just something there that I, I haven't quite processed. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't really give much thought to the cat. But mm-hmm. but that was a very intentional thing for sure. Right. Right. And then as she's leaving, we see the art, the, what's left of it just being sold by a street vendor bought for like five bucks even though what must have been just a few days before than being sold for up 600 million for, for like right a set. did you ever listen to our haunted paintings episode 
Auntie Payton's episode. I, I did. It sounds amazing, though. It was one of our Halloween episodes. It was a really fun episode. But we talk about paintings that are supposedly haunted. What I thought was really interesting about the artwork, about Ventral Deesa's artwork, is there are some paintings. There are a couple of them, I think, that include this image of like a young boy and a young girl. And they look, the young boy and the young girl, look a lot like this famously haunted painting. And so I wonder if the writers like actually researched haunted paintings and like use that aesthetic to some degree, or if that's just a crazy coincidence. Oh, I bet they have. I mean, that that can't be a coincidence. If you're making a movie on haunted paintings, they're going to draw some inspiration. Yeah, it was just there was one image and I'll try and find it and put it up like on our Instagram so you guys can see. But there's one image specifically, one painting by this artist and the little boy and the little girl look maybe not exactly, but they look even just in the style they're painted. They look a lot like the boy and the girl in the painting. The hands resist him which is a painting from 1972 by Bill Stoneham that we have talked about before that is supposedly haunted. So maybe that was an intentional visual choice on their part. Uh, Maybe the styles just overlapped, but I thought that was really interesting. Fun note, if you just Google haunted painting, the hands that resist them is the first listing. Yeah, (laughs) it's like one of the most notorious. Yeah, I'm looking at this picture right now, and that was definitely inspiration for the movie, at least part of it. Because there, there are all these depictions of what look like family, right? It's always like a group of people all struggling or all in horribly uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break, and then we can come back and talk some more about our thoughts and our criticisms of Velvet Buzzsaw. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We have returned from our commercial break, and I am here with dear friend Brian Muldoon talking about Velvet Buzzsaw. Hey, all dear friend here. The dearest of friends. Big movie buff. In fact, I feel like when we lived together, I watched more movies than I've ever seen like in my life. You kept me on top of what was going on movie-wise. I tried one. Well, I, I and- watch them, and you were also in the room, so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you also were always going to movies. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go to movie. Then we like went to opposite sides of the country. And now I never watch movies unless you tell me to. Yeah. Like this movie we're talking about today. I told you to watch it. You did. And then I watched it. And now we're talking about it. (laughs) That's funny how life works. So thanks, Brian, for keeping me somewhat connected to what's going on in contemporary film. That's what dear friends are for, you know? All right. So Velvet Buzzsaw. Okay, I've got like kind of a big missed opportunity that I think could have really made the film way better. I've got a few. Do you want me to hear what you have to say? Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll start with mine and we can go from there. Okay, so like the whole idea is that these paintings, they were essentially like haunted by the spirit of this old man. It comes to light that this dude had a really 
troubled life, right? Like his dad was super abusive and then he later killed his dad in, in a pretty dark way. And then he made all, all of this work in his life, but he specifically requested that the work be destroyed. Yep. No one was supposed to see it. He did not want it out in the world, right? Yep. And then the gallery assistant found the work and claimed she found it in a dumpster, which isn't true. So all the people who ended up profiting off of this work basically end up getting killed in some horrific way because the spirit of the dude is following them around and he's mad because he didn't want that to happen to his artwork, right? So it kind of frames, while it does frame him as a complicated man who did some dark stuff, it does kind of frame him as, I guess, more of just like a, I don't know if hero's the right word, but like a vengeful type of hero in the sense that he is going after people in the art world who are profiting off his work in a way they shouldn't be, who are greedy. And so like he's kind of seeking justice in a way, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there is this level of, even though, yeah, hero definitely isn't the right word, but there is this level of him seeking some kind of moral justice. Now where I think the opportunity was missed And I almost thought maybe they were like going this direction and maybe it was part of the idea and it just wasn't fully like fleshed out. But I think given the current political climate and everything, one question we deal with a lot right now and we talk about it in so many episodes of the podcast is what do we do with the art of bad men, right? Ooh. I feel like that's such an overarching question right now when it comes to art history, when it comes to film, when it comes to all types of art right now. What do we do with the art of, you know, these men that we find out were shitty people? And so I feel like it was a missed opportunity in the sense that if Deese would have been framed more as just like a bad person, like as like an evil person who did evil things, like framed as this really evil guy who then made all these paintings, then you could have gone this direction of the art is haunted by Deese's evilness, and therefore we shouldn't be profiting off of the art of evil men. Wow, I didn't even right? think about that, but that's so good. But I think you're totally right in that the movie does not, it's almost like an aside comment where they give Jesus' backstory. They spend most of the movie just you seeing all these horrible people profiting off his art. Exactly. And with Jesus' backstory, while it's dark and a lot of like dark shit happened, he's not necessarily like the sole villain of his backstory. You know, he killed his dad because his dad was abusive. Sure. Once again, like a moral vengeance type thing, like a justice type thing going on. So like Deese is complicated and definitely has a lot of darkness. But I think they really could have drove home this like, what if he was just a undeniably bad dude who did bad things, made paintings, and then the art world profited off these paintings and they were killed because the art was haunted by the evil man that made them. Character that made them, yeah. I think that was just a big missed opportunity that could have really hit the nose on stuff that's going on with how we look at art right now. Totally. And it would have given a, which ties into my gripe, is this movie was a horror movie, which was really exciting for me going in as Apollo the Nightcrawler, but I didn't think he had any purpose with it, right? That we have all these kills. Mm -hmm. It's almost a slasher movie, but Killer is a haunted painting. 
but there's <laughs> it's not saying anything. I feel like in the, the front half of the movie, we're getting some really interesting, juicy, dark satire of people that are profiting off art that are just, they don't care who they're hurting. They don't care the lies they're telling. They're just all to make money and, and it's not for any noble cause. And then, and then they start being kicked off. And I feel like if there would have been some purpose to, to the horror and the scares that we have. Yeah. And I think that would have been a great one for it, especially current climate having this commentary because i love that i love that that's why it's people are profiting off these artists that lived historically awful lives yeah i totally agree i feel like you know there was a bit of a statement being made in the sense that we're critiquing you know the way the art world operates and we're critiquing i guess both the hubris and the greed of a lot of people in the art world and like we're kind of, I don't know, setting those things up as, yeah, like moral failings. But yeah, that's about it. That's really the only, other than that, it's just paintings killing people. <laughs> and then when you, when you do realize in the movie that that's all that's happening, that's when I think a lot of disappointment sets in. At least for me, it definitely did. I'm like, okay, well, they're kind of fun. They're kind of entry level. Not, they're not really leaning into these fun depths. Like I feel like the movie is setting up. They totally could. Tone was so high so like out there that they could have really just gone i feel like the tony collette one with that here should have been and mm-hmm. this movie did and i think it would have heightened it, yeah you know definitely yeah that was a disappointment i had for it I, yeah because I, I think we've seen evidence of horror stories that have such purpose the scares i think most recently did you watch the haunting of hill house show yes i did oh my gosh i loved it so much and i think one of the things i loved so much about it was the the horror wasn't like i think in this movie just peppered in for like a little flare that it actually had a purpose that it was actually interwoven with this family's grief that it was all one of the same Mm -hmm. it wasn't a gimmick definitely i mean do we think like i totally agree but is it also possible that maybe the gimmicky nature of the horror was kind of meant to mirror the gimmicky nature of the contemporary art world do you think that wasn't a thing I guess, I guess maybe then it was, the gimmick wasn't clearly defined. There's, yeah, yeah. Each death, I didn't know the, what the rules of the world were. I didn't know what the extent this painting had power. You know, at first I thought you just... Yeah, definitely. And it would mess with your head. But then there's the scene where the guy's got crates of paintings in his car and the painting managed to like get him off the road. And it just wasn't clearly defined. I didn't know what was at stake and what I really should be scared of other than being in the room with the painting is then some weird set piece will happen and it won't be clear what they're trying to do but yeah i totally agreed like the ways people died varied so much that like sometimes it didn't even really feel like you could connect the paintings to it you know if these paintings are killing someone like that should be made very clear in some way you know But yeah, it did. It kind of felt like, I don't know, almost like the spirit of Deese had total power over whatever. From just like a horror standpoint, there should have been more clearly defined rules. Because also, like, a lot of people interacted with these paintings in some way, you know? Like, got free, you know? So, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it was really a missed opportunity there for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one the one rule was, yeah, you had to profit off the paintings and then you were killed by art in some way. Yep. But where 
that get like where that gets complicated is everything can be defined as art. So like, I know we talked about earlier, yeah, that there's now I don't know. So is it a commentary on that? Is it? I don't know. I think that maybe he was trying to say a lot of really interesting things. Like clearly, there's a lot of things in the movie that I like. Just get another person in the room and run it off by them. You know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Going back to things I love, starting at the beginning of the episode. I did. I loved Jake Gyllenhaal's character, even though he's not really representative of. I mean, he was 100 percent a parody of what we think of when we think of famous art critics. Sure. Even like the most famous art critics don't live lives that are that luxurious like they really don't being an art critic is not a way to make crazy money selling art's a way to make crazy money but like critics don't make that much money (laughs) i felt like his character was definitely like this big parody of what we think of when we think of high profile art critics and there is even apparently jake gyllenhaal said that he based part of his character off of jerry saltz who is a very high profile art critic But this general idea of he is the arbiter of taste and what he says is what drives the market. And so the market wants to know what he's going to say before he says it. While I think it was, yeah, like this bigger convoluted parody of how it actually works. It still comes from like a true place of how it actually works. Because when you look at the art market, it does run on this idea of you have Certain people that are supposed to tell you what art is good, which is just like a bullshit premise to begin with. And then you have the rich people with the money that want to buy the art, but they like a lot of them just want you to tell them what's good so they know what to buy. So it's just like someone says what's good. Rich people buy it because someone said it was good. And then the value of that art increases because rich people buy it for a lot of money because someone said it was good, right? Right. So you've totally lost all human connection to art and like what it means to an individual because you're like following the set rules. And it's, yeah, it's all, all operating according to money, status and power. And while I think there are a lot of people that that try to maintain integrity of art and integrity of art appreciation, it doesn't change the fact that money, status, power is kind of the guiding force in these transactions. Yeah, yeah. So he was one, a really fun character because yeah, he was, he was so, so Nick Cage like and so expressive, which was really fun. And he did really express this idea of. I don't know, someone almost being so obsessed with their ideas of taste that they can't just like enjoy anything anymore, you know, Yeah, which is like a very real thing that happens in the world of art criticism, I think. They get so cynical about what they don't like that. Is that what you're getting at? They they suddenly don't know what they do. Yeah, basically, I think in the world of criticism and this goes for other forms of criticism too, not just art criticism, but like I think music criticism operates similarly is that you, I don't know, almost take that role as a critic so seriously to an extent that you think you're defining some objective truth about art. And it's like art is highly subjective because the thing about art is that it means something different to everyone. Like you can basically say like a piece of art 
it resonates with you or it doesn't. And you can explain why. But like at the end of the day, just because you're a high profile art critic and you don't like a piece of artwork, that doesn't mean it's not going to resonate with other people. So it's like this trap of like you think you're like searching for some objective truth that doesn't exist, you know? And I think that what was represented in Jake Gyllenhaal's character like that scene where he criticizes the color of the coffin of yeah. and it's like really bro like <laughs> you're at a funeral right now <laughs> just give it a minute like come on right criticism is a complicated thing but i liked that they kind of painted this picture of uh the art critic that way and then also by the end of the movie jake gyllenhaal's character is trying to do the right thing. He, I think of everyone is the one that's out there like trying to make it right. He kind of plays the art detective and he kind of, I think, sees his own faults in the process of trying to right the wrongs that have happened in this film. But then that leads us to the loosely defined rules. Why does he then get killed? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's commentary on there's no forgiveness, you know, there's no redemption from something like this. Is it commentary on the cutthroat nature of the contemporary art world? Or even if it is, because you were just saying that he's, he is the end all of taste within this art world, being this art critic. Do you remember what mm-hmm. killed him was the, the art relation at the very beginning of the movie that he thought was trite and dumb and so I think there's... Oh, that's good. I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh, I like I like that idea, that imagery. The art that he was like talking shit about came back to kill him. Oh, that's pretty good. Because <laughs> the art is, you know, this this animatronic that's saying, I can't save you, I can't save you. And he looks down a lot like mm-hmm. pity, or not even pity, in the beginning of the movie, it's, it's like disgust. Like You're not worth the air that I breathe. And then at the end, that coming back full circle, that saying, I can't save you. Um, I think it's good. I think there are some uh, wonderful moments in this movie that are so disjointed <laughs> that it's hard as a Yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Definitely. It is, I also just think, a fun movie to talk about and a fun movie to critique because the concept, the idea was so big and so absurd slash awesome. You know, like yeah. you're dealing with the contemporary art world, which is already a crazy place. Yeah. Then you're dealing with the supernatural. Like you've just got two big things that you could go a million directions with. Yeah. And I think this movie went some of those directions successfully and some not so successfully. Yeah. yeah. I wish I, when I saw the trailer for it, the trailer for this movie is actually amazing. I got me really excited. I don't know. It just it wasn't consistent. It was kind of a letdown. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I it, it was definitely just one of those where I was like, oh man, I love this, but yeah, it had some holes for sure. For sure. But I would, I I really hope um some other directors and producers take up the task of dealing with things that meet in the middle of contemporary art and the supernatural because those, <laughs> those are two things that I think are really fun themes to combine. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other movies that have done that. Well, before we sign off, do you have anything else to say? Any final thoughts on either the movie or, you know, just anything you want to say? Anything I want to say. Horror movies are amazing. We're in a new renaissance of horror. It's coming back. Thumbs up. You know, I'm very excited. For every Velvet Buzzsaw we have, we won't get all winners, but it's a great medium. 
that's it. I guess that's all I got. You should start a horror film podcast. I would, but there's already a great one. Shockwaves. Check it out. It's amazing. That's it. Thank you for having me. This is fun. If you ever need a dear friend Brian to come back and talk about anything else. 100%. Real quick, I'm going to read a listener mail because that's what we do at the end of episodes. Listener mail. Um, So this one actually just came in today and it's in response to our Anselm Kiefer episode that we just put out recently. It's kind of just like a fun little tidbit, just like a, a fun connection that might be interesting to think about if you enjoyed that episode. So this comes to us from Mark. Just listened to your show on Anselm Kiefer while working on a home renovation project over the weekend. Yes, the art history babes are great listening while hammering and sawing as well as cutting grass. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> when you mentioned that he was born in Württemberg, Germany, my ears pricked up. For over 20 years, I lived and worked in the small village of Zor, Ohio. This historical village is the oldest maintained by the Ohio Historical Society and was founded in the early 1800s by a group of religious separatists from, you guessed it, Württemberg, Germany. Listening to your description of Kiefer, I was struck by how similar he was to the separatists that formed America's first communal society in Zor. Our office was the old print shop in the village and many of the bound volumes of discourses that form the backbone of Zor Religious Society were written in a style that was reflected in your portrait of Kiefer. I wonder if this is a case of being able to take the boy out of Wartenberg, but you can't take the Wartenberg out of the boy. <laughs> Please keep up the great work. I greatly enjoy your podcast. I have many more home improvement projects to complete in the near future. Thank you for writing in, Mark. That's just a fun little connection. And I don't know. I don't know if he had any connection to this separatist group. I'm just like interested in religion and religious sex. So I kind of want to look them up and find out more about them. I imagine they're like, because we talked in the Anselm Kiefer episode about how Anselm was brought up Catholic. So I imagine that they are a sect that stems from Catholicism. But yeah, going to look into it more. If any of our listeners know anything about this group or the history or find any other interesting connections, please feel free to reach out to us. We love getting follow-up emails like this. And yeah, thanks for listening, Mark. Brian, thank you so much for being here. This is really fun. We should just record all of our phone conversations and turn them into podcast episodes. But we should keep doing it. We could start our own podcast. Oh, it's like Brian and Corey talk podcast. That's what it would be called, too. Top of the start. And we could just have a new theme subject every week. Like, there's no rules. It's unhinged. It's Jake Gyllenhaal in a Nicholas Cage way. Oh, we could call it that. Like, Brian and Corey unhinged. That's even better. I think we'd be pretty tame for a show called Brian and Corey unhinged. Fair. You know? <laughs> We'd have to get amped before recording. Red Bulls, just like on the verge of a heart attack. <laughs> getting all our thoughts out as fast <laughs> as we can. I love this idea. I'm I'm putting I'm storing this away in the back of my brain for future content. All right, but thank you, Brian. And uh yeah, hope to have you on again soon. Bye. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey, and this is Dumb Dumb Brian. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs>